Hey everyone, welcome to a special episode of Asley EcoCast. We're happy to be sharing with you more audio from Asley's Spotlight series, which feature moderated conversations with Asley members who have produced new critical and creative work in the environmental humanities. Episodes follow a theme and highlight publicly engaged scholarship. This special episode is the first of the 2022 series, titled Public Engagement and Performance, and was recorded on March 18th, 2022, with Joshua Calhoun and myself as co-hosts, and featured guests Janice Ray, Odile Cisneros, Petra Cuppers, and Spencer Robbins. The second episode of 2022, titled Entangled Geographies, will be held virtually on Earth Day, Friday, April 22nd, 2022, at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. You can register to attend now at asley.org. So hello, everybody. Thank you for, for joining us for the first uh, Asley Spotlight of 2022. Uh, Asley seeks to inspire and promote intellectual work in the hu- environmental humanities and arts. Our vision is an inclusive community whose members are committed to environmental research, education, literature, art and service, environmental justice, and ecological sta- sustainability. For more information on the organization or to sign up for the future spotlights, visit our website, asle.org. That's A-S-L-E dot org. Uh, the second spotlight, Entangled Geographies, will be held on Friday, April 22nd. That's Earth Day uh, at 2 p.m. Eastern Time in the U.S. Um, just a reminder, we do have uh, closed captioning turned on, so feel free to use that. Uh, we are recording this episode to be shared in the future. If you could make sure that you uh, keep yourselves muted throughout the episode uh, so that we're not uh, distracting from our wonderful uh, guests today. And then uh, if you have any questions as the, the panelists are talking, um, excuse me, feel free to throw those into the uh, the chat and we'll do our best to get to some of those towards the end of the episode. So uh, I am excited to, to welcome you all to this first Asley Spotlight on performance and engagement. And uh, I'm joined today with my co-host, Joshua Calhoun. Thanks, Brandon. I'm really excited as well to be here and uh, happy to be co-hosting with uh, Brandon Gom. Brandon uh, is uh, the founder and co-host of the Asley EcoCast podcast. He's also the department chair and instructor of English and speech at Cloud County Community College. I'm so happy to be doing this with you here today, Brandon. Yeah, thanks. And uh, Josh is an associate professor at UW-Madison, author of The Nature of the Page, Poetry, Papermaking, and Ecology in Renaissance England. And he's the co-hoster and founder of the new Holding History podcast. Uh, So today we're going to be talking about performance and engagement in some ways with the the various ways that our panelists have have arrived at this. Uh, And performance surround us. We, We watch plays and films give praise and credit to powerful, truthful actors. But each of us in our own way also embodies performance daily. The clothes we wear costume us. Our behaviors are driven by social scripts. Uh, This spotlight and our four guests asked us to consider our performance in the world and to move that performance into positive, active engagement with our communities and our world. Yeah, and performance is also um, a powerful form of public engagement. Um, There's 
this vulnerability in performance that engages audiences and uh, makes them uh, hold their breath with us and hope for our success. And even in that moment of showing our own vulnerability in performance, uh, there's an invitation to engage, an invitation to uh, open your own uh, vulnerabilities and to uh, allow a different kind of conversation than you may have been having before the performance. Um, our guests today are glowing examples of this kind of performance as um, an inclusive and vulnerable, meaningful spaces of uh, public engagement. And we're so excited to speak with them. Yes, absolutely. So our first uh, presenter that we're gonna hear from today is Janice Ray. Janice is a best-selling writer whose subject is often nature. Ray's won a Pushcart, New York Times Notable, and American Book Award. Her previous books include Ecology of a Cracker Childhood, The Seed Underground, A Growing Revolution to Save Food, Wildcard Quilt, Taking a Chance on Home, and the poetry book Red Lanterns. Janice, whenever you are ready, please take it away. Brandon, thank you. And thank you, Josh. Thank you, Amy, and all of ASLI. It's, ASLI is one of my favorite organizations, and it's so nice to be a part of this. Um, I wrote my first book of nature writing um, in 1999, and I, I did it because I was extremely concerned. Let me see what time we're at. Um, Brandon, will you time me for five minutes? Is that okay? Um, I was extremely concerned about the world and I wanted to see, you know, I, I, I've always said that I don't care about fame and money. Um, I just want to see a change in the way that we humans occupy the both the constructed environments and the natural environments. So um, I was forced uh, pretty young onto stages, you know, because of this just desire inside of me. And it, it meant that I did try to develop ways of presenting information that I thought would um, be more helpful. Um, I wanted I wanted to just talk about this last book because after you know like ten years had gone by and I had not published a book and I have a new book out from Trinity Press so it's called Wild Spectacle you see the name of it there I. Um, I, I, we're just most of the news that we're getting these days is dark, and I, I wanted to really show. I wanted to document why we, why it's important that we love the earth and are acting in every way possible every day, every minute of every day, in ways that defend and protect it. So I, I have. I have never published a collection of essays, and I, I really admire writers like John McPhee, who, you know, he's writing for The New Yorker, and every year he does this collection. And so I began to look through essays that I'd written, and the theme, you know, the obvious theme is just, you know, even, even as a, a person born in poverty and a, and a person who chose to be an independent writer, unaffiliated with a university or, or an organization, like really just making my living, making my way independently, that I, I have been able to see some amazing sights. And, and so I've collected these essays based on, uh, you know, their essays about, look, what I found, what I saw, what I heard, what I thought, and what I learned when I sojourned in the wild. 
I actually want to read you about three paragraphs from the last piece, because this is the thing that I really, I mean, we talked about vulnerability in the introductions, but that's really not, you know, it, it to get up in front of people is a vulnerable thing, but it's not what, it's not what I think about. Um, I took some kids into Okefenokee Swamp and in the middle of the swamp, one of the kids drank from a Powerade bottle in which I had poured lamp oil. So I had this kid who was poisoned, you know, in the middle of this, it's a very wide, 30 mile wide wilderness and we were way out in it. And I had to tie him in a kayak to the back of my boat and haul him back out and get him out in time so that he he was okay. Um, I was in a horror movie. The camera was panning. A woman was in focus, churning two boats forward while the landscape streamed by in a blur. The woman was becoming bigger and bigger until she was archetypal. She was a warrior, teeth and claws on strings around her neck, bangles rattling on her wrists. She was transforming into one of the matriarchs pictured on a tarot card. Her, her torso grew into a lioness's, horns sprang from her head, and in her hand she wielded a lightning bolt. And so then I'm going to skip to... The very end of this essay, which published in Terrain, thankfully, one of the most important poses in yoga is a warrior asana. Knees bent, arms outstretched, looking forward over the right fingers. It's a pose that requires strength and balance, training for both the physical body and the wisdom body to respond when we're called to action. In this asana, the demons of ego, fear, and jealousy can be slain. As my yoga teacher likes to remind me, you need more than a wish. You need burning desire and fierce determination. When I am in this pose, I know that I'm in training, learning to be aware, to not turn a blind eye, to not back down, to not give up. Sometimes the only weapon we have is awareness. Sometimes all we have is a little light that we can shine outward into a big darkness. Sometimes, however, we tap into to our superpowers and then we can transcend and bring about transcendence. Most of us, most of our lives are asked to live small. Most of us quit trying very young to live the bigness we know is possible. Now, no matter what I choose or what is asked of me, I know what I became. That long, long night, I paddled alone through shamanic darkness in the desolate wilderness, just this side of the ultimate wilderness. So that's it. That's my public, that's my public engagement and performance piece that I try to remind people of their power, their power to change their lives, to change their their city, their state, their country, the entire world. Thanks so much, Janice. Um, and I'm delighted to now introduce our next guest, uh, Odile Cisneros, uh, who received a PhD in Spanish and Portuguese languages and literatures from New York University. She's associate professor in the Department of Modern Languages and Cultural Studies at the University of Alberta. And uh, we're so excited to hear about Ecopoesia from you. Uh, well, thank you so much, um, uh, uh, Brian, uh, sorry, Joshua, <laughs> sorry, Joshua, and thanks so much also, Brandon, uh, Amy, and Bridget for uh, inviting me uh, to this wonderful event. It's really an honor. And also thank you to Asli for 
supporting this project. Um, um, so um, a few years ago, I began thinking about um, really the, the connection between uh, literature and environment in Latin America. It seemed to me that there was a lot going on uh, with um, this engagement in the realm of, of um, uh, English and um, uh, uh, English language um, studies, American poetry, and so on. And as we know, a lot of the early um, uh, scholarly work really engaged mostly the poetry of um, Romanticism in, in Britain and engage nature writing uh, in, um, in the uh, United States. Um, I'm a scholar of Latin American poetry. And I found that uh, interestingly, if we look at the production of Latin American poetry, it really could be seen as um, poetry that is ecological avant la lettre. So even before there was a sort of a formulation of uh, environmental thinking, uh, many poets in Latin America were already thinking about this and, uh, in their writing, um, uh, but also in their activism. Uh, and so um, I really wanted to approach this topic both from the perspective of, of research and from the perspective of teaching. So I came up with a course uh, that was based around this. And as a result of that, um, I also started thinking about um, trying to put together a collection. There was no collection of writing, so there's wonderful anthologies of um, environmental poetry, even here in Canada, uh, in the US, there's many different, but there was nothing that really brought together the expression of Latin American poets. And so this is how Ecopoesia uh, began, uh, both as a, um, both as a, a pedagogical tool and also as a research tool. And with regards to the question of engagement as well, the idea of bringing this poetry to, uh, to the wider public. So that's, uh, that was my, um, uh, my um, hope, my goal with Ecopoesia was to bring, the, um, to bring these poets that are scattered in many ways, in many venues, and to bring them in one place and to curate a collection that would allow readers to do things that they could not possibly do with a book, for example. Um, so I will now share my screen and then just give you a little bit of a tour. Um, I think, let's see, I would like to, I don't know if you can see my screen, just to, to give you a sense of how this, um, how this works. Can, every, can everybody see that? Yeah, okay, perfect. So, um, so Ecopoesia, as I said, is a kind of a, a curated site that presents uh, perspectives on um, environment and poetry from Latin America. And so the features that I think are, are sort of unique about this is that we offer not only a, a kind of um, sort of, uh, you know, what you would expect to find in any anthology, you know, which is a collection of authors and uh, their work. Uh, and so we've, we've included authors from uh, many parts of Latin America, and I will show that in a second. We have a map for that. So um, we have um, short biographies here uh, and also a collection of some of their poems uh, and also related resources. This is a work in progress, so we're still filling in the blanks for some of, the, um, for some of these uh, poets. But 
Um, so you are able to just uh, be able to look uh, at, you know, look up poets, you know, from different parts of, of Latin America, uh, and also to engage their work in different ways. Um, the other thing that is, I think, again, unique and important is to be able to offer this work in different languages. So the site is trilingual. We have uh, English translations. You know, we're, we're working on providing as much as possible in English. Uh, we also have, of course, the originals um, in Spanish um, and in Portuguese. So you can switch up here. You can, you know, you can switch the language of the website if you like. Um, the other thing that, uh, that we tried to do was uh, to also provide ways of looking at this poetry uh, as sort of collections around different topics. So if you go to the main page, um, and I'll switch to the English now again, um, you can also uh, uh, search poems by um, words in the poem themselves. So it's just a regular search. And you can also, we've created some uh, sort of uh, categories uh, where we've, we've uh, basically combined poems in different ways. So we, these categories, uh, as you can see here, for example, human slash nature, you know, sort of problematize the idea of what it means to be human nature. Uh, vegetal life, um, wilderness, um, different, you know, earthscapes. So we, we have uh, created um, also these smaller collections. So clicking on them, you're able to get a, um, a collection of poems that would uh, sort of speak to some of these different topics. Um, so each poem also uh, comes with a, um, a sort of illustration uh, some of them, not all of them, but uh, so we wanted to make the uh, the um, website quite simple in the sense that as a reader of poetry, you don't want to be distracted very much. You just want you want the the text there, but if you're interested, there's always more that you can that you can uh, find. There's also a way that the poems are linked to place. We created a Google map where you can. Um, it's not necessarily that all of them are directly related to the place that uh, that we pinpoint here on the map, but it's also a way of, you know, of locating. Um, so uh, if you move around on this map, you know, you're able to see, for example, something very fascinating here, which is that Central America, small as it is, contains a really, really sort of a, a, a production that is really sort of kind of outsizes the, the, the territory. So that, that's a way of visualizing also the production in a different way. Um, so I think my five minutes are up, so I'll leave it at that, but I really invite you to explore the website and um, uh, let me know what you think. I'll put the link in the chat uh, and um, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to bring this to your attention. Thank you so much. And I'll stop sharing now. Thank you so much, Adil. So our next presenter is Petra Coopers. Petra is a disability culture activist and community performance artist and teaches at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Her third collection is the Ecosomatic Gut Botany, one of the top 10 poetry books of 2020 for the New York Public Library. She's the artistic director of the Olympias, a disability culture collective and co-directs Turtle Disco, a somatic writing space. Uh, you can also visit her at her website, uh, www.petracuppers.com. 
Thank you so much. Thank you for making me part of this. I'm delighted to be here. And I just dropped in. All right. It's just before ordeal. Sorry about that. Um, I just dropped in the two links for my book as well. One is a link to the open access version. So you can read the whole thing. And um, the other one is to the introduction and the flyer, which you're very welcome to to have here and to share because it's it's really nice to have an open access book uh, for once, right? So, you know, I don't have to worry about publicity or trying to flog it to anybody. I can just give it away. Just wonderful. So I am Petra Kappas and uh, my pronouns are she and her. And I am a, uh, a white cis queer woman with a nearly bald head and with yellow glasses who's wearing right now a pink shirt, uh, which goes very nicely with my lipstick. And I am right now in Florida. I'm in Seminole territory and I am in a um, in a hotel room, which has an absolutely amazing background to the bed here. This is a very interesting rhizomatic background right behind me, completely fortuitously, but absolutely suited to an Asler um, session. So thank you so much for, for being here. Normally, I'm on Nishinaabe territory in Michigan. That's where I live. And that is very much the background for what I'm sharing with you here. I'm sharing my new book, Ecosoma, Pain and Joy in Speculative Performance Encounters with the University of Minnesota Press. And it's a book that's grounded in and moves from disability culture. So it's a book that is very much concerned with the arts and culture created by disabled people, where we share our pain and pleasure, heft and depth. And um, it's just been such a joy to put this book together. Uh, it's it. It charts just over 10 years worth of performance encounters, both encounters where I am witnessing other people's work and also uh, where I am creating with my collaborators our own performances. So each chapter has, um, has one of our own performances as well as other people's performances. And what we were discussing is finding pain and joy in relation to our environments, our umwelts. I'm German, so I do use the word umwelt, um, but it, is, it does mean our environments. Our environments, both in material terms, in terms of the nets that we're part of, and also in terms of the sociocultural and historical aspects that make up our environment, just as much as the environments that we can touch with our senses. A lot of the work is about being where we are and feeling ourselves in space. So right now, just for this little second, in these five minutes, I just invite you to take a breath with me and to just become aware what you're sitting on. And this is the kind of invitation that you find strewn throughout the book. I invite you to become aware of what supports you right now, if you're sitting, if you're standing, if you're lying, whatever position you're in as you're participating in this, in this online event here. And to just feel what holds you, what offers you support. And if it's accessible to you, take your hands and touch the surface that you are sitting on right now, or lying on, or standing on, or walking on. And just feel what it is that you are touching. What do you touch? Do you touch wood, metal? plastic, cotton. Just try to sense into what it is 
And for a second, just let your mind go on a fantasy journey of where this material comes from. So in the longer meditations that I lead and that I also discuss in here, we're looking at where oil comes from, you know, where, where um, you know, ancient in ancient forests where trees fall down into the water, where sediments uh, accumulate above them, where deep pressure transforms them into what becomes oil, where we think about how oil through polymerization becomes plastic. You know, we're trying to make our way through and touch in with different kinds of time periods, different time signatures. On the cover here, let me audio describe the cover for you. So on the cover, we see someone who is also in a different time signature. We see a person, um, a person that has clay and or paint all over their body and that uh, that has a... uh, a chest brace, and this person is lying in or emerging out of green materials. Uh, looks like uh, like sumac, you know, some some kind of plant material of the Pacific Northwest. And um, around this this figure are wound the the the, le- the letters of Ecosoma. But this this person here, which is Yulia Arakelian from Wobbly Dance, a disabled dance artist, is moving in different time signatures. So we we get a sense of crypt time. We can touch in with crypt time. We can touch in the fact that we're all living in different kinds of time frameworks. So um, throughout the book, I'm discussing people who live often at odds with dominant culture or and who create work that allows us to centrally touch in, somatically embodied touch in in what, what it means to create, to find both pain and pleasure in time differences, in different ways in which we are attentive to the world. And performance is one of the ways in which we can do that. So thank you for letting me share some of this and I hope you enjoy the read. Thank you so much, Petra. It's, it's wonderful to hear these, and we'll go on to our next uh, and final guest here, and then we'll have some time for discussion. Spencer Robbins is a PhD candidate in the English department at UCLA. His research focuses on narratives of collect- collective action and world making in response to environmental change. He's also worked as a writer and researcher on projects with the Laboratory for Environmental Narrative Strategies, or LENS, and his writing has appeared in the Paris Review, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and at kcet.org. Spencer, welcome. Hi, thank you so much. Um, And yeah, I'm here to tell you a little bit about uh, LENSCAST, which is the podcast of the Laboratory for Environmental Narrative Strategies, which is uh, an environmental humanities uh, research group at UCLA that's really interested in public engagement and uh, public storytelling as academic practices. So, uh, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. So my goal here is to introduce you to the podcast a little bit um, and also just to kind of briefly pose a question about how embracing a public form of engagement like a podcast might or might not change the kind of work that environmental humanists do and the kinds of stories we tell. So like, what are the, what, what particular kinds of stories um, does a podcast encourage? So in 2021, a team of students uh, at UCLA began producing LensCast, uh, an experiment in forms of audio environmental storytelling. Um, and as this, the slide shows, we, we first produced a set of episodes on our own Uh, which consist of two stories focused on environmental justice issues in LA. And these are both uh, available on our website, which I'll link in the chat, 
um, and also on various podcast hosting platforms like Spotify and, and Apple Podcasts and things like that. Uh, and the idea for, for both of these first two episodes was to take a potentially familiar issue or object and re-narrate it through a lens of environmental justice and historical research. So for example, our first episode uh, produced by Matthew Swanson does that with LA's iconic trees, especially its palms. Uh, we tried to show how LA's trees are both part of a history of colonial conquest and also how they can be vectors for environmental justice and injustice. And in our second episode, similarly, uh, which was produced by Gregory Toy, we wanted to complicate the mainstream environmental movement's embrace of green infrastructure projects like transit. Uh, so the title of this episode, Please Take Off Your Shoes, comes from a motto shared with us by activists in LA's Little Tokyo neighborhood who are fighting the displacement caused uh, by the construction of a major transit project there. So for both of these episodes, we talked with activists, artists, and academics. Uh, and so both, uh, both of these follow a fairly familiar interview-based format. Like they try to be original in content and to look at familiar issues from new angles informed by scholarship. Uh, but in format, they're, they're fairly familiar uh, as podcasts. But also in 2021, Lens partnered with another research group at UCLA, The Labyrinth Project, which uses a mix of interviewing ethnographic fieldwork and digital archival research to explore the construction and contestation of natures in Los Angeles. So basically they had done a summer's worth of field work that resulted in them having this incredible research archive that included a lot of audio recordings. And they wanted to experiment with presenting it in creative form. So we decided to collaborate on a set of episodes based on those materials with a focus on questions of multi-species justice uh, and multi-species encounter. And what was really interesting um, with the, this approach we took to the second set of episodes was the challenge of taking this archive of materials that were not gathered with a podcast in mind and thinking creatively about how to animate them in ways that were narratively, sonically, and analytically interesting. So for example, uh, in an episode that I narrated called Coyotes in the Cloud, um, we wanted to use posts, anonymized posts from the neighborhood message board app Nextdoor that the team had gathered, posts in which Los Angeles residents debated um, fairly intensely what to do about the city's population of urban coyotes. And we didn't have recordings of these posts, they were just text. So what we ultimately did was perform them. We had team members read them as sort of parts in a, like an audio play. Uh, about imagining these cloud coyotes as vicious killers moving through digital neighborhoods. Um, and this episode also built on really extraordinary ethnographic research on urban coyote-human interactions by my fellow graduate student, Chase Niesner, uh, from which I learned about the surprising intersections between anti-coyote, anti-homeless, and even anti-Black Lives Matter politics in Los Angeles. Uh, but our, our sort of emotional performance of these next door debates led us to think hard about the role online coyote debates play in mobilizing these destructive political affects. And that actually ultimately led to further research and, and to a co-authored paper where we analyze uh, cloud coyotes as a feature of the settler colonial imagination that governs LA's ecology today. So I think that's an exciting example of how experimenting with the podcast form, its capacity for performance and sonic layering and juxtaposition 
actually helped generate an argument rather than just being a vehicle for a pre-existing set of ideas. Like the form inspired the thinking we were doing in that episode. And that's what's exciting to me about this project. It suggests that collaborative experiments in a public form of storytelling can lead to new stories and a richer understanding of human and non-human lives. So we have lots of other episodes, uh, including about uh, the interdependence of rats and lions in Los Angeles, about the dilemmas raised by LA's massive population of feral cats, and about the satanic cult that founded the No Kill movement in Los Angeles. Uh, I hope these sound interesting. I hope you'll give the podcast a listen. I'll post the link again in the chat. And uh, I'm excited to discuss today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Spencer. Okay, so uh, the next segment here, we've uh, Josh and I have a couple of questions, and we're just going to kind of open these up to uh, our panelists and and hear what they have to say about them. So uh, I'll kick things off with with mine. Uh, I'm curious. So we've, we've been talking today about the different aspects of performance and public engagement that that your work um, kind of you know attempts to embody and, and things like that. But I'm curious how you bridge that with. Um, with the performance or engagement of your audience as well. In other words, how do you, how does your work or yourself embody these performative uh, aspects? And what do you hope that your audience will, will take away from that, right? Rather than just reading or listening, um, what's that thing that you want to move them into action with so that they're actually performing themselves in really positive ways? So Brandon, I will jump in. This is Janice. Um, I was, I was, thinking as, as we were all talking, and I'm just so glad to get introduced to, to everybody's work. Um, I was realizing that I have, for the past couple of years, been really grappling with this idea of, of books and the efficacy of books. You know, so when I began as a young nature writer, um, it, books were they were everything, you know, we didn't have the internet and all the things that we have now. And I, you know, I, I know the number of copies of my first book that sold, and I know the number of copies of my last book that just came out, and they're very, very different numbers. So I know this is an aside, um, but, but I, I'm just really glad to that that this is that, that we're talking in this forum about this. You know that I don't want to give up the book. And so, as you were asking the question, I was real, realizing, you know, I'm a reader. Um, I I read books transformed my life, and I want to do that to others. But it may not be. It may no longer be the best you know way to reach people. Thank you. And this is Petra. Um, I'm happy to speak to this one because performance is central to what I do. I might love books too, but performance is my my main modality. And I'm very excited not only in, in witnessing performance, which of course has been so hard over the last two years. You know, like our field has been so so hard hit by by this this inability to be with each other energetically, fully, three-dimensionally, somatically, um, that I'm very excited to share this work again and see how we can we can think together about what is so special about being together three-dimensionally. And the, the performances that I'm discussing in this book span from uh, Australia, a lot of performances in Detroit, a lot of Nishinaabe performance work, um, a lot of work with 
people in water, a lot of disabled people going swimming together in water. And I'm just, you know, in like swimming pools, in on beaches, in lakes, in rivers. And I'm trying in the book to invite audiences to come with me you know so like many many times you will find these these invitations similar to the one we just went through with um what are you sitting on to be become aware of yourself as embodied being embodied beings as you're reading so um janice as you just say right we have books is here this this mode of communication and yet books can also invite us to experience ourselves and our bodies differently so we can use our fantastical imaginations to um to transform ourselves into salamanders we can use them to grow gills we can undo the world we live in and live differently we can look at um at injustices, at white supremacy. We can look at the effects of violence in the world and imagine what it's like to live differently. So those are performances that we can activate through reading practices as well as through feeling, sensing, and being practices. Um, I, yeah, I, I love this invitation to think about and, and, and the thoughts that we've heard so far about um, the, the relationship to audience and performance and the kind of performance we're asking our audiences to engage in. And, and one thing I think about in connection with our work is uh, the, the name labyrinth is meant to um, invoke the sense that exploring nature in LA means stepping into a set of relationships that you don't uh, understand in advance and that you're going to discover connections between and, and maybe surprising and challenging connections between along the way. Um, and that really described well our process for making the podcast. Um, you know, we we started with this this huge set of um, research materials, audio recordings, interviews, encounters, um, and we didn't know what the shape of the stories we wanted to tell about that archive were going to be in advance. We actually used um, a really interesting kind of improvisatory process where we used mind mapping software to trace possible connections between these different clips and to look for emergent story ideas that often kind of intersected with each other and, um, you know, using the same clip in multiple stories and things like that. Um, so we've tried in the episodes to kind of embody that same process of discovery and what we're asking our listeners to do to not preview too much the argument or the story that each episode is going to tell to sort of maintain that sense of surprise and to try to maintain moments of surprise and discovery we encountered in the way we then present those moments to our listeners. Um, so I think there's a, yeah, there's a, an ask of the audience and maybe a challenge to the audience to be uncomfortable uh, and open to the different, uh, to the possible connections that you're going to encounter over the course of each of these episodes at, at their best. I think they, they kind of bridge our process for making them and hopefully our audience's process for hearing them. Adil, I want to make sure if you if you wanted a chance to take a, a, a shot at that question, you have time, but of course we, we have other questions as well. Yeah, sure. So just, uh, yeah, just really quickly, I think I'll just um, sort of um, speak about what I, you know, just elaborate a little bit on what I said earlier, that, you know, when I, when I started thinking about this project, um, you know, the, the engagement, I think, I, I don't think that my project is so much about performance, <laughs> but it is about engagement, you know, engaging different audiences uh, through, you know, a medium that would allow, you know, readers to do different things that they wouldn't be able to do with, with a book, which is what I mentioned, for example, having, having multiple, you know, having a trilingual site that could reach 
audiences far and wide, um, but at the same time, you know, trying to connect them to place. Uh, so that's that's one of the things that I, I had in mind. Um, and also the fact that, um, you know, I believe in the transformative power of poetry. You know, I really do. I am a, a poetry reader. And I believe that, um, you know, just as much as there is activism, you know, on the ones on the one hand, there's also that kind of transformation that happens and that sort of, you know, insight that um, a reader will gain, you know, from from a, a poem that, you know, speaks to them. And so part of this is also engaging the audience at that level, you know, um, at the level, I think, of, of their, you know, sort of consciousness. So I think that poetry affects us in ways that are very different from uh, political discourse. So that is what my, my objective is with this site, is really to bring this poetry that cannot, you know, reach audiences otherwise, uh, because, again, you know, because of language barriers, because of, you know, just publication barriers and all kinds of things, put it in one place and make it available um, so that people can explore and and can, um, again, to use the same word, to, can engage with it, at, you know, on their own terms. Thanks so much. I, I know we're going to have time for other questions. I have one more question. question. And uh, uh, I want to say I'm just impressed with this impressed work. With I enjoyed, enjoyed looking at your work. And, and I um, um, was curious, though, as I looked at your projects, projects about projects maybe about the frustrations, frustrations or anxieties that we, we don't, don't see. see. Uh, uh, the metaphor that came forth in my, my mind was feeling, was feeling that, we that we all have, and I'm sorry, it's sorry, really it's echoey, for you. echoey for you. It is, okay. Um, I, I have been having issues. Is it a little better now? No, I, I got it. Yeah, there was someone that was on, not muted, so I, I got that covered. Okay, okay, sorry about that. Um, we've all had this experience maybe of, of having a shirt that used to fit really nicely and maybe because we've grown or because of uh, the dryer or something like that. It, it's, it's suddenly just a, doesn't quite cover the belly. Right. And, and then you're anxious all day because you keep pulling it down. And, and yet like most of us wouldn't notice that but you feel self-conscious, you don't reach above your head and you're just kind of aware of this thing. I know I felt that in projects and I just wondered, I hope I'm not the only one. Have you felt that in your own projects and these projects you've presented to us? Are there, um, bits you're trying to pull down so we don't see them, but that really are, those those vulnerabilities are important to the work and, and maybe that you wouldn't mind talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd love to just briefly jump in on this. Um, I love this question and I love the metaphor of the shirt that doesn't quite fit. And, and I think uh, maybe a perfect example for us of the shirt that doesn't quite fit is, is the concept of the episode um, as a standard affordance of the podcast form. Um, so I described earlier our process, right, for coming up with, with our story ideas, where we took this huge collection of short sound bites and interviews and images and, and stories and encounters and started exploring interconnecting questions between them, uh, connections between them using the metaphor of the labyrinth and our explorations of the labyrinth. And early on, we wanted that formal quality of the storytelling to be part of the experience of listening, not just part of the experience of making the project. So we envisioned, for example, a sort of visual website where uh, different lines connected, made different connections across the same body of materials so that people could listen in different orders, could encounter the same, say, interview clip 
in different episodes with different themes so that they would have different meanings upon different encounters and really have a much more exploratory and self-directed listening experience. And we were really excited about that. And then we started to run up against the realities of podcast distribution, where if you want people, I mean, you use the word podcast, people expect to be able to find it on like Apple podcasts and on Apple podcasts, you have to upload in the form of individual bounded episodes. And so for a while we were trying to sort of have it both ways where within the episodes, we would have moments of interruption that would say, Hey, if you want to explore in this different direction, go listen to this other episode. And then we started sharing it with audiences and they all hated that. And we're like, well, that's not how a podcast works. It's episode one, two, three. I listen in order. It's like right there on the screen. So um, we, we ended up, you know, really kind of backing our way into a much more standard, again, I hope within these episodes, the forms feel very experimental and interesting and exploratory and surprising. Um, But our desire to engage the public and the realities of sharing work in a public format that's sort of pre-designed under certain assumptions about the form of consumption that people are looking for, that really ends up shaping the work in a way that maybe is interesting and exciting and productive, but also very limiting. So um, that's something I'm, I'm, we're still thinking about is how can we push against those formal constraints even as we operate within them? I'm, I'm happy to speak to that too. It's interesting. Um, when you're putting a book together, there are always moments of uncertainty and, um, you know, what should I put in? What should I speak to? How has the historical moment changed? And, um, moments of stumbling were very clear to to me in the writing. You know, as I'm trying to write as someone who, as a disabled person on her scooter, enters into uh, uh, Black-hosted performances, into Indigenous-hosted performances, and as I'm encountering my own, you know, the, the the limits of what I what I can respectfully witness, what I understand, what I'm able to share. And so the notion of stumbling, unclarity, figuring out, acknowledging um guest status I was is very central to the book. So there's multiple places where I left the stumbles in, including leaving in descriptions that I then have to revisit as I am, as I'm in dialogue, as I'm in collaboration with, with people around me and I'm becoming aware of my own learning journey. So these moments are in there. So you will find my, me revisiting what I just said and redoing it in order to show what, what has happened, you know, what it is that I'm doing that, that allows me to, to engage with the reference field that is, is not mine to begin with. So it's particularly strong, I think, in the um, Indigenous and Settler chapter. Um, and then there also are other moments where I'm trying to find other ways of acknowledging multivocality in the book. And um, one of the chapters has a whole segment where many, many different collaborators um, come together in a montaged web of we have utterances from many many different people who participated in the salamander project going going swimming with disabled people going underwater together taking our air away and then people write about that experience afterwards in many different languages and we're creating this web and normally disabled people get written about you know we get diagnosed our stuff gets taken apart and, we, and people figure out what's up what's going wrong what's what's right whatever and I'm very much trying not to do that. You know, we're very, very much not trying to become material for other people to read. So how can one host multiple voices without 
these voices becoming um, fodder for diagnostic procedures. So I'm very interested in the difference between analysis and diagnostic procedure. And, and then yet in another chapter uh, where we're engaging in a performance called The Journey to the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin, um, which by the way, all these, these many of these shows have videos attached that you'll be able to, to see so you can always get your own sense of what performances are. In that performance, I'm not talking about the um, after show discussions that people had. You know, I'm very specifically honoring the privacy of people who were in a performance that was quite emotionally challenging. If you read about it, you could actually imagine Journey to the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin, hosted by uh, Jewish and non-Jewish German people, uh, both disabled. Uh, it's a very challenging experience to go through and it's an experience we go through with uh, Australian Aboriginal activists with people who lived uh, and remember the division of the Indian and Pakistani borders you know multiple kinds of of human divisions and then also in engagement with plant life and painkillers as plant life so in all this melange of so many different witnesses having such different perspectives on the show at times I step back and don't say everything that's happened in those spaces in order to give people privacy. So there we once again open up to active readers. We invite you to have your own response. You know, there is this moment of holding space for you all. So these are all, you know, having these kinds of discussions are all stumbling moments. They're all moments where you think, ooh, here's the shirt and here's the body and how do I make this fit? <laughs> so thank you for the metaphor. I, I can jump in, Janice again. Um, you know, thinking about vulnerabilities, um, Josh, I think that it, for, it, for any of us to step into a project requires, you know, stepping through so many questions. And and these always, uh, um, sometimes they trip me and I fall, and that would be questions of our own adequacy and so forth, you know, all of our own shame. And then beyond that, I begin, I will question myself about, so there's so much in the world. There's so much, so many people are producing their art. We're all producing these narratives. And does the world, you know, do you need more things flying at you? So then I have to cross through that gauntlet of fire. And then I, and then usually I go through this one, which is, okay, look at the resources this is going to use, like another book in the world. Do we need another book in the world? We all know we should be planting trees, you know, and we think that computers are, uh, are, are not harming the environment, but they completely, the energy that's being used, even as we're all on it right now, all the natural resources that went into making these devices. So, you know, me, I'm a, as a purist, you know, as somebody who just loves the wild world and hates to see, I hate to see it being destroyed. And I, I have to really walk through all that. I, that's why I quit flying. I quit flying 13 years ago because of this. It just didn't make sense that I, in my love for the world, would also destroy it. And then the the last thing I want to talk about is the this this always comes up for me in any project book engagement, and and that is we have to pass through the narratives that are being spoken to us by mainly corporate 
capitalistic society, by militarism, by industrialism. And, and I think it's what makes our work so very important because much of our work is a negation of those dominant paradigms. And it's so very important to reach people with other these other alternative uh, cross-cultural stories. And yet, there's always that place where it that society, this society that we belong to of capitalism is a barrier. Odile, anything that you want to add to that question? Not to that question necessarily, but I, I actually just wanted to pick up on something that's been asked in the chat, if that's okay. So I think uh, um, Gisela asked, uh, you know, um, related to Latin America, teaches environmental justice, how can you talk about the concrete and tangible, uh, how these engage or can these engagements, how concrete and tangible can these engagements of the general audience be? How do you get a sense of who's engaged with your project? How often this occurs? Um, fascinatingly, of course, websites do have a way of tracking, you know, who goes to your website. And who's, you know, so, so I think, you know, that, that is is another tool. I mean, speaking about technologies and speaking about, you know, just different uh, resources that are available to us, you know, in this day and age. And I'm also a book lover, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's things that I think websites and other technologies do better and that allow, allow us to kind of extend, extend the reach, you know, extend that engagement further. And so there's, you know, there's the, the Google Analytics, I guess. I never really looked into the Google Analytics for my website. Uh, but it is a way of saying, hey, somebody, you know, in Patagonia found my website and they're reading about it. And so that's exciting also to just see the the, the, the reach of, of some of these projects, which you think, you know, you're sitting in your office working on this. And does anybody really care about what I'm doing? And uh, and you're able to to connect in that way. So that's all I wanted to say. Yeah, that was a, a great question um, posed by uh, Gisela in the chat there. Does anybody else um, want to uh, speak on that in regards to their work at all? Yeah, I, I really also enjoyed that question. Um, and I don't really have necessarily an answer to how to track this, but I do think that um, pushing for open access is a really good way to, th uh, to think about um, economic justice. So... Um, within the proviso of what we've just heard that obviously everything has costs. It's not as if anything's for free, but particularly if you're working with or about people who might not have access to university accounts or, um, uh, you know, finances to, to buy books. It's, it's amazing that we are able, that many of us are able, if we can, to, to push our publishers towards open access. Because I know that, uh, this work uh, can go to many more disabled people than my other work did, even though, again, all of that has been made available, but more in sub, sub you know, subterranean ways. Now it can be openly accessible to people just with one click if they are uh, available, if they have digital means available to them. So I think that is very important for us to think about what is the, the economic justice aspects of the kind of work that we're putting out? What does it mean if we keep feeding publishers who have published me, Routledge, Palgrave, those kinds of places? They've all, you know, I've worked with them over my career, but I am very happy to move away from that towards different kinds of economic models now, if at all possible. And yet, and we'll see what the, the difference will be 
you know, how how this book might go versus books that I've had with other kinds of more international publishers. I mean, I, I write a lot. Um, for also for, um, many of the people I work with in this book are Australian, uh, Aotearoa New Zealanders. Uh, it's it's a fairly international book, so we will see uh, how how that will track as as the as the book goes out there. You know how a university press goes versus versus other kind of presses, and this is an issue more for the academics among us rather than those of us who work with independent presses. But it's an interesting question. Okay, thank you. Well, I, th I think we are about out of time. Um, so thanks again to everyone uh, for, for joining uh, in. And uh, just another reminder, the next spotlight will be Friday, April 22nd. Uh, note the, the slight uh, time difference. This one will start at 2 p.m. Eastern time um, rather than the uh, regular 1 p.m. Eastern time in the U.S. that we have been using. So um the uh, registration for that is through uh, asley.org, and we hope to see you here again in about a month. Mm -hmm.